Good morning, church. Well, please open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. I know the slide says 1 through 32. This is going to be a two-parter. Doing a couple topicals in between books, and so I finished Romans. Got a couple things I'm going to do before I start the next one, and this is one of them. So uh, we'll be covering the first 10 verses today. So Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 1 through 10. Title of this is Lost and Found, Part 1. And once you're there, if you're physically able to stand for the public reading of Scripture, please do. I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. Luke chapter 15, starting at verse 1, says this. It says, All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him. And the Pharisees and scribes were complaining. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man among you who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the ninety-nine in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it? When he has found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together, saying to them, Rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. Or what woman who has 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? When she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, because I have found the silver coin I lost. I tell you. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. This is the word of God. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. God, we just thank you that we're able to gather together this morning and sing songs of praise to you, that we're able to pray to you, that we're able to give our offering to you, that we will be able to partake of the Lord's Supper together. And Lord, we thank you that we are able to come and hear your word proclaimed. Together, So I pray, God, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive what you are saying in your word here, that you would remove me as much as possible, Lord, that you would give us a heart for what the scripture says, Lord, that you would give us a heart that reflects your heart, one that that longs and goes for the one. So please, Lord, grant us that. Please change all your believers here and those who are listening online. Change them. Transform us all to be more like our our Savior, Jesus. And Lord, we pray if there's anybody here who doesn't know you, that they will hear your gospel proclaimed and that they will be saved on this day. And we pray in everything, God, that you would be glorified. And so we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. As Christians, we often emphasize joy above happiness. And the reason is simple. Happiness comes and goes based on what happens to you. But joy is when you are content and at peace regardless of what happens to you. Joy ultimately is the sublime realization that you are part of the household of God. Well, joy is not something you do, right? You don't, joy is not a, a thing that you do. Joy is something that you have. But, but when the joy that you have spills over into action then we have a verb called rejoice, right? So when that joy that you have spills over to action, we call that rejoicing. That is when we celebrate the contentment and peace that God has given us. That's when we celebrate the things that we love, that are very important to us. Well, my purpose this morning is not to talk about joy in and of itself. Instead, I want to ask us here, what gives us joy? What is supposed to cause us then to rejoice? I mean, all of us probably rejoice at times over a lot of ultimately meaningless things, okay? And I, and I know deep down our salvation gives us joy, but I want us to move beyond that just for a moment. If we have been restored to God and we are to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, then shouldn't we rejoice over the things that God rejoices over? That's, that's the point, right? Should the things that are most important to us also be the things that are most important to God? And I think we all know the answer, right? I don't think anybody would disagree. We would all say yes. But then that poses another question. Do we in our actual lives live and think this way? 
I know we know that's the right answer, but do we live as if it's the right answer? Are the most important things to God also at the same time in our lives right now the most important things to us? See, as I said, people rejoice over what's important to them, and people labor over what is important for them or important to them. So Really, what I'm posing is the question is, what if in reality, in our lives, we're actually not or we don't regularly rejoice over the things that God rejoices over most? That's what I want us to think about. What if we did not labor for what God is actually laboring for? What if we're not laboring for the things that are most important to God? We would all agree that would be a problem, right? That would be a big problem. Well, our text this morning is a text that shows us exactly what God rejoices over. There's no ambiguity here. It's clear. It shows us exactly what's important to him. It shows us exactly what it looks like to work for what is important to God. Therefore, it provides a great opportunity for us to look and see if our priorities are in alignment with God's priorities. And if not, it gives us a graceful opportunity to course correct, right? That's what the word of God does for believers. Now, all 32 verses of chapter 15 make only one point. And originally, I thought in my ambition that I was going to be able to preach the whole thing in one sermon. But once I got to verse 10, I'm like, all right, this is long enough. So we're doing verses 1 and 10 this morning. But do understand that it goes right along with what I'll be hitting next time in the rest of the chapter. So then if it's all one point, what is the one point? It's this. There is immeasurable joy in God over one sinner that repents. That's the point of the text. There is immeasurable joy in God over one sinner that repents. Okay, that causes God, when a sinner repents, it causes God so much joy that he rejoices. Now, how do we know this? How do you know I'm not making this up? Well, Christ Jesus shows us this truth through three parables. Three parables, right? He's going to show us that there is immeasurable joy in God over one sinner that repents through three parables. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. Okay, those three parables will demonstrate this. Now this morning, we're only going to get through the first two. The lost sheep and the lost coin. And then next time, we will cover the lost son. But with each parable, we will see what ultimately is important to God. Namely, what God rejoices over. And it's my prayer that we will share his heart and do what he calls us to do about it. So as we approach Luke chapter 15, we're going to see what God values. We're going to see what he treasures. And we're going to ask ourselves if we value and treasure the same. Now, a little bit of context. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus was teaching the crowds and people were coming to him. A lot of people. No one had ever preached like this before. No one was ever able with their words to get to the heart of the things like Jesus was able to. And of course, we know why. He was the long-awaited Messiah. He was God in the flesh. He was the son of David who was going to make all things right again. And so in light of that, in light of what he was doing and what he was teaching, crowds were coming. Okay, And, And the thing is, if he is the Messiah, which he was claiming to be and his followers were claiming he was, Verse 1 would definitely surprise, surprise the sensibilities of first century Jews. Look at verse 1. It says, all the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him. Now, why would it run contrary to the sensibilities of the time that the Messiah would be approached by tax collectors and sinners? It's because these are some of the worst people in Israel. Tax collectors were not like the IRS employees, okay? The Tea Party revolt a while ago was not the same as how these folks felt about tax collectors. See, in our society, we have a social contract with our government where they agree to provide services, we agree to pay taxes, okay, to pay for those services. That is not how it was in the ancient Roman Empire. All across the empire, not just Israel, but all across the empire, people did not like tax collectors. Why? Because they were corrupt and greedy. It wasn't like today where there's a a certain percent that's set on your income and then you just pay it and you're good for the year. No, instead, the Roman Empire would look at a city or a region and it would say, you know what, it's going to set an amount of money. This region owes us this amount of money, so the people better figure out how to get us that total sum of money. That is what would be due in taxes. And even if that region didn't even make enough money to cover the set amount, too bad the Romans would come and burn the place down. 
Okay? So what would normally happen is a wealthy person would go pay the total sum up front. Oh, this city owes this much to the Romans? Got it. He would pay the Romans the full amount, right? The government now had its money, but since that person paid the government, the government allowed that person to now shake down that city or that region to get his money back, right? But not just to get his money back. He was allowed to collect a lot more than what he paid, okay? And it, does it seem unjust? Yes, but the Romans didn't care how much he collected. They already got their money. They were happy. And so they were going to back him with soldiers because they know he's, they're guaranteed to get paid every single year. So my point is, tax collectors always collected a lot more than the Romans required. They bled people dry. It would have been bad enough if you paid the Romans what you owed. But it's worse now that you're having to pay a tax collector because you're paying a lot more than what you would have owed if you just paid the Romans. For this reason, which is obvious, people didn't like tax collectors. In fact, the famous Roman uh, philosopher Cicero, or Cicero if we're going to say it right, but it doesn't sound as good, Cicero insulted one of his opponents saying, you're as bad as a tax collector. Back then, those were fighting words. Okay, you called me what? That's like saying, what'd you say about my mama? I mean, you called someone a tax collector. That's it back then. Well, take everything I just said and multiply it by 10 or even 100 if we're talking about tax collectors in Israel. Because in Israel, we're talking about people who worship the one true God. And now they've been conquered by the Romans. They are an oppressed people. The Romans saw them as dogs. They treated them as dogs. In fact, to make a point, there were times where the Romans would actually crucify hundreds of Jews at once and leave them up for days, not even letting them be taken down by night to be buried. They would leave them up for days. In, in Luke, in chapter 13, just two chapters earlier, Pontius Pilate decided to slaughter some Jewish men as they were worshiping in the temple. He mingled their blood with the sacrifice at the altar to end up ruining it. That shows you how they thought about Israel. They laughed at the Jewish people. They laughed at the Jewish God. And so there was a reason every Israelite hoped that the Messiah would come and destroy the Romans. And I know we often think low of them for that, but if you lived in Israel at that time as an Israelite, that's what you would be wanting the Messiah to do too. You would be wanting him to set you free of that Roman oppression, to destroy them. So here's what I'm getting at. If someone is going to collect taxes for the Romans, if a Jew is going to collect taxes for the Romans, that means this person is the worst kind of traitor. They make Benedict Arnold look like a loyal American. A Jew who is willing to pay the Romans off by giving them the owed taxes and then charges his Jews way more money is the low kind of person. This is a traitor who will keep his own people in poverty so he could kiss up to the foreigners who absolutely hate his people and hate his God, okay, the God of his people. And so the Israelites, they also knew that the tax money was funding the worship of false gods and all sorts of evils. And yet, it seemed clear, since the tax collector collected taxes, that he cared more about being rich than doing what's right. Okay, this person was only about the money. Okay, not only were tax collectors greedy, they were traitors, they were even worse, they were blasphemers. They respected Roman power more than they respected God. So usually, if you decided that you wanted to grow up and be Johnny the tax collector, your family would disown you. They just would. You're the worst kind of traitor. Furthermore, you were never allowed in synagogues. You weren't allowed to give testimony in court because your word was worthless. Nobody in society would accept your tithes because it was blood money. So actually, in Israel, in the first century, tax collectors were seen as worse than Gentiles, worse than pagans, which, by the way, when you're reading Matthew 18, and it's talking about church discipline, and Jesus tells you, regard the one who won't repent, because of church discipline, regard them as being a Gentile or tax collector, he's saying, regard them as being worse than an unbeliever. Okay, that, that's what it would have meant in that context. So these guys were really bad. And the only social circle available to them were other vile sinners, prostitutes, adulterers, adulteresses, thieves, and the list goes on and on. They're the only ones that would hang out with tax collectors. That's why our text tells us, quote, tax collectors and sinners, we're coming to Jesus. Sinners was just the catch-all for all the other kinds of evil people that they hung out with and joined in community and fellowship with them. But anyway, all that is what's fascinating about this, right? It says all the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him. 
They're coming to listen to the Messiah. This means that large numbers of these sinners wanted to come and hear this teacher of God's word. These were people who couldn't go to synagogue and hear the word of God on a regular basis. These were people who desperately needed redemption. And they thought that maybe, just maybe, this guy that we're hearing about, maybe with him there's a chance, even for people who are as bad as us. That's what it displays that they were coming to hear him. Now, when it says all the tax collectors and sinners came, again, in in Hebrew narrative, they like to exaggerate. So when they say all of them came, it's just their way of saying a lot of them came. It was a lot. It wasn't just a small amount. It was a lot of these sinners showing up. And we would be thinking that's good, right? As Christians, we're, we're conditioned, hopefully, to think this is a good thing. But not everyone saw it that way. Look at verse 2. Verse 2 says this. It says, and the Pharisees and the scribes were complaining. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, this is a problem. If you have the Pharisees and scribes telling you you're wrong, that's a problem in Israel because these were the religious experts of Israel. These are the guys who were most serious about the word of God. The Pharisees, they attended school for it where they studied the Torah, the prophets, and the the writings, which is the Tanakh or the, the Old Testament. Okay, they also memorized, in addition to that, generations of oral tradition about the written word of God. And then when you add the scribes to it, they were even more intense than the Pharisees. They were the keepers of the written scrolls of the Bible. So their job was to copy every word of the Bible again and again. And I'll tell you something, when you're hand copying the word of God so much, it gets in your head. You understand the grammar, you understand the syntax, you understand all that stuff. And so the scribes were the foremost experts on the scriptures. They were even called lawyers at times in the scriptures because they could argue points from scripture better than anyone else. Sometimes if a scribe said something, it was considered binding because everybody agreed the scribes know the most. Now, not all scribes were Pharisees, or excuse me, how do, how do I say this? Not all Pharisees were scribes, but all Pharisees would like to be a scribe because that's like super Pharisee level, right? And so if you wanted to be a Pharisee that was on the Sanhedrin, you had to reach the level of scribe. Now, why were the scribes so revered? Because the first scribe was Ezra. Goes all the way back to near the end of the Old Testament. Ezra was the first scribe. So these guys were, I guess you could say, they sat in the chair of that venerable tradition. Well, take these Pharisees, take these scribes, and it tells us they were, quote, complaining. The Greek tense implies that this was a continuous and ongoing complaint of theirs. It wasn't a one-time complaint. This is what they did. It seems like as they watched Jesus, this was a, a fairly regular complaint. And what they're complaining about is very specific here. It's not just that Jesus is teaching them, which they would think is bad enough, but they say this. They say, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, to welcome them means to receive them. It means to say, I'm not rejecting you outright. I will receive you into my company. It means to sit down and have fellowship with them. There wasn't another holy man in Israel that would do this. And and, and there's good reason because rabbinic tradition, which was becoming increasingly authoritative during that time, made it clear that the righteous must not associate with the godless. So their answer, the Pharisees' answer of how to deal with these people was simply to act as if they don't exist. They, they forfeited their life to exist when they started collecting taxes, right? You certainly don't eat with them. You don't sit down with them at the same table. You don't act as a friend to their community. And yet here Christ is, sitting with them, eating with them, having table fellowship with them. Now, I do want to stop for just a second and tell you that there's some people who press this too far. And what I mean by this is you've often heard people who want to justify a sinful lifestyle saying, yeah, but Jesus hung with the sinners, man. So I'm just hanging with the sinners just like Jesus did. Okay, listen, these guys were coming to him. They were coming to him. And were there times where he would go in their homes? Absolutely. Okay, but Jesus was not hanging out with them as they were doing their sins. Okay, so some people think like, yeah, I'm going to hang with people while they're sinning. I'm going to encourage them in their sin and be affirming because that's the loving thing to do. And so some folks will go to the bars with them. They'll go to the wild parties. I think in our current context, what you're finding a lot is people saying, well, the way I'm going to love, let's say, the LGBTQI uh, community is by affirming their lifestyle. That's not what Christ would do. It does mean you invite them in the home. It does mean you hang out, you know, with them, but you're not with folks, whoever it is, 
while they're in the midst of their sin. Jesus was not hanging out with the prostitutes as they were committing prostitution, right? He wasn't hanging out with the tax collectors as they're shaking down people and collecting the taxes. That's not what was happening. He was with them outside of that stuff in order to teach them the word of God. And the interesting thing is they knew he was teaching the word of God and they're the ones who wanted to come and listen, right? And so he's not going to coddle them, but he does want them to repent, So again, this isn't painting a picture of him hanging out with sinners as they're committing the sins. Instead, this is him looking at them as desperately lost and he wants to save them. And that should be our hearts as well. He wants to change their lost condition. And so it's in response to this that he tells these three parables. These parables are a rebuke to the Pharisees and the scribes, but they also reveal the heart of God for those who are desperately lost. And and I know we kind of have a hard time piecing this all together because Romans chapter 1 tells us the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and all ungodly people. We know God's wrath is coming. So sometimes we hold on to that and, and think God's just waiting to judge these people. He's just counting the days before he could crush all the unrepentant sinners. And so because of that, we then act like we should stay away from them entirely as we're just waiting for God's judgment to come. Listen, if that's how you think, you're like the prophet Jonah rather than the God who sent Jonah. Jonah wanted Nineveh to be destroyed. God wanted Nineveh to be saved. Now, if Nineveh wouldn't be saved, yes, God would destroy them. But he still gives the offer to salvation. So we have to hold these things in tension. Yes, God hates sin, but he is willing to save sinners. And his heart is to do that very thing. Okay, so Jesus doesn't want anyone here thinking that God is simply raging in heaven until he could finally destroy the wicked. No, he's going to tell us these parables to tell us what God's really doing right now, what God's thinking, what his affection is for those who are lost. And and that's what's going to show us the the heart of God in this. So let's take a look at the first of these parables, the parable of the lost sheep. Luke begins in verse 3 by saying this, so he told them this parable. Now keep in mind, who's the them? He told them this parable. The them is going to be the last people mentioned. And the them, the last people mentioned, were the Pharisees and the scribes who were complaining. So whatever else you might think about these parables, okay, it is first directed at the people he's rebuking. He is first and foremost and primarily talking to the scribes and the Pharisees, okay? And and now secondarily, because that's not the only one he's talking to, as he's rebuking them with these parables, he knows the sinners are listening as well, okay? So secondarily, he's talking to them through these parables, in order to give them hope. And then, of course, since he had this written down for us, he's talking to us as well so that we can see exactly what God's heart is for this. Now, the way Jesus is going to teach to them and give them hope and rebuke the Pharisees is through parables. You've heard the word parable before. Let me just quickly define it. A parable is a story where someone is teaching a deep biblical truth by using an example from our common experience. So back then, everyone knew what a shepherd was. Even if you weren't a shepherd, they were such a part of life that you saw sheep coming and going. You saw shepherds out in the field. You know what these guys did. You probably were friends with some of them. Okay, so he could bring up this common thing and everybody would get the point that he's getting across. So let's look at verse four. Jesus asks this. He says, what man among you who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the 99 in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it. Now, I want you to think about this question because by posing it as a question, he's already checkmated them. He's checkmated the listener. And what do I mean? Well, look how the question is framed. It's framed in such a way that you're only allowed to give one answer. It's framed as if any right-minded shepherd would do this. They will leave the 99 for the one. Any shepherd worthy of the name shepherd would do that. So this isn't asked in a way that invites debate of the premise, okay? It's not asked in a way, well, would it be a good idea? No, he's saying, which of you wouldn't do this? In other words, what kind of dirtbag are you, right? It leaves no room for you to argue. It was like in third grade, are you PT? Uh, No, you're not potty trained. And so it's just like you lose no matter how you answer the question if you don't answer it the right way. I don't know if I was the only third grader who had to deal with that. Because then when you said yes, they're like, oh, you're a pregnant teacher. And you're like, ugh. But anyhow, kids. So otherwise, this thing Jesus says, there's a lot you could debate about this. He asks the question so you can't debate, but there would be a lot to debate. And here's what I mean. A person that has 100 sheep is well off. 
They're not filthy rich, but they are very well off. So losing the one sheep is not going to make the person go broke. Additionally, the 99 that you still have, that's guaranteed value. That's the bird in the hand, right? The one missing sheep at this point is the bird in the bush or the two in the bush. He's hypothetical, right? You don't even know if this sheep is still alive. Maybe the wolves got him. Maybe he walked off a cliff. Furthermore, if you leave that 99 undefended, what's to prevent you from losing more than the one? You might get that one, but by the time you get back, five more wandered off or wolves got to them. Additionally, the labor of this would not be easy. The labor of searching for one would not seem worth it. The unrelenting Judean wilderness makes finding the sheep incredibly difficult. So if you were to use reason or rationality, if you were seeing things strictly from the standpoint of efficiency and pros and cons, it would never cause one to leave the 99 to go look for the one. You never do it. It wouldn't make any sense. But Jesus doesn't even consider that an option. He asks the question in such a way that if you are trying to reason this way, he'd be like, you're the disgusting shepherd. And and I think the reason he can do this is because we are very quick to reduce sheep or anything down to only an economic entity rather than a living creature that, that we should care about. Reducing living things down to economic entities is what has allowed for some of the greatest atrocities in history. Slavery, human trafficking, that's because you're reducing people down to prices, down to an economic unit. When you instead consider the value of life, then you can no longer only keep it as a matter of opportunity, cost, or pros and cons. You have to also say what this thing lives and breathes. Okay, so even if the economic value is high, the value of life is always worth more. Now, of course, we still have the tendency to think like the Pharisees, and we can think like the Pharisees. If you think about it, the Pharisees here will be able to convince themselves this doesn't apply to them. See, we could convince ourselves that it's not worth the effort because it's dangerous, but we could also justify our callousness by saying, well, that sheep was the dummy that wandered off. Why should I put myself or the 99 at risk for the dumb one who wandered off? And then they could say, I know what you're getting at, Jesus. Likewise, that tax collector was not tricked into collecting taxes. He was well aware of his choice to betray God, to betray his people, and to live a life of sin. And yet, despite all the rationality we could throw into this, Jesus' question still stands. Which of you, if you're worth anything good, which of you would not leave the 99 to search for the one? Which of you would not at least try to save the one. Now, I think it's likely that Jesus started off this way with the sheep metaphor because the Pharisees and the scribes, as experts of the Old Testament, should immediately start thinking of scriptures that talk about sheep and shepherds. And so maybe this would get them to start recalling the most important passages about it. And given the identity of Jesus, who is talking to them, The most important passage in the Old Testament about sheep and shepherds is Ezekiel chapter 34. There, God condemns the shepherds of Israel. They took care of themselves, but not the flock. Now, I could picture the Pharisees saying, well, wait a minute, we do take care of the flock. Every Shabbat, we have synagogue service. We teach them the word of God. We do weddings. We do funerals. We counsel those who are in the community. It's these people who've wandered off. They're not the flock. Okay, But we do take care of the flock. Yet, Ezekiel 34 shows that God has more in mind of what good shepherding is. Look at Ezekiel 34, verse 4. I'll start there. Here's where God's condemning those old shepherds. He says, You have not strengthened the weak, healed the sick, bandaged the injured, brought back the strays, or sought the lost. Instead, you have ruled them with violence and cruelty. Now, I want you to notice in that, God says, You've done nothing for the weak, You didn't help the sick, you didn't tape up the injured, you didn't bring back strays, and you did not seek the lost. Most of these are descriptions of those who are in sin, okay? God held the shepherds accountable for not ministering the word of God to those who were wayward. What do you think he means by strays? And those who were lost, the very people Jesus is trying to teach, right? And so God makes an astonishing statement after this. He's saying, you failed. You haven't even gone after the lost. You're sorry shepherds. And so because they're sorry shepherds, here's what God continues a little further in the chapter. Ezekiel 34 verses 11 and 12, God says this. He says, for this is what the Lord says. See, I myself will search for my flock and look for them 
as a shepherd. So he's looking for them. They're lost, right? He says, as a shepherd looks for his sheep on the day he's among his scattered flock, so I will look for my flock. I will rescue them from all the places where they've been scattered on the day of clouds and total darkness. That is telling you that God will leave the 99 for the one. He will. The one matters to him. And when he leaves the 99, it's not like we're out in the wilderness and we're going to die. God will not lose any of, of whom he saved. But the point is, he will go after the one. Why? Because they matter to him. God is the one that they wandered away from. Therefore, God is the only one who has the right to treat them as if they don't deserve to be saved. After all, God's the one they rebelled against. Okay? If they rebel against God, God could say, you know what? This sheep isn't worth it. But God alone is the one that gets to make that call. And the interesting thing here is God says, I will go after them. I will go after the lost sheep and I will gather them. And then what's really interesting is a little later in the chapter, God specifies the means of how he's going to rescue or properly shepherd the flock. Check this out, Ezekiel 34, verses 23 and 24. He says, I will establish over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will shepherd them. He will tend them himself and will be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. I want you to think about that. He's not literally talking about David. When Ezekiel wrote this, David had already been dead for 500 years at that point. The prophecy is not about David. It's about David's greater son. It is about the fact that God promised to David that there would be one from your house who will sit on the throne forever. The Messiah, right? The Messiah would be the shepherd of Israel. God promised David that the Messiah would come from him. So Ezekiel is simply just using the name David to stand in place of the Messiah. Well, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one who will shepherd Israel as well as all of God's people that he's calling from the nations as well. So here's my point in bringing up all that Old Testament background. These Pharisees and scribes are supposed to know this. They're supposed to know the Old Testament, but instead they're valuing their oral traditions above it. And before you start saying, oh, them and their oral traditions, a lot of Christians do the same thing. A lot of Christians place their own creeds and confessions above the scripture and ignore the scripture's command all for the sake of the creeds. You don't know how many people I've talked to where I'll explain Romans 9 through 11, and they have to deny what the word clearly says because their creeds or their confessions of faith say, yeah, but that can't happen. They'll say they're sola scriptura, but by their actions, they're not. And even churches that, let's say, uh, are low confessional, meaning they, they, they don't subscribe to any confessions, but they have statement of faiths, they still build their own traditions sometimes. And in their own traditions, they're at times quick to nullify the word of God. The Pharisees weren't the only ones guilty of this. Okay? But the point here is the Pharisees did the same. Okay? They, 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 they were nullifying the word of God. They didn't realize or they were failing to realize that they had become just like the faithless shepherds that God was condemning in Ezekiel 34. They were exactly like them, right? But the son of David here, Jesus, is doing exactly what he was supposed to do according to that text. And so their complaint showed that they totally missed the point. Had their hearts really been cemented to Scripture and cemented to God's heart revealed in Scripture, then they would have realized that Jesus was doing exactly what he was supposed to do. They should have looked at him and said, wait a minute, let's rethink this. Maybe he is the Messiah. He's looking for the lost sheep. He's strengthening the weak, healing the sick, bandaging the injured, bringing back the strays and seeking the lost. Maybe it's him, okay? Now Jesus, bringing up sheep in this first parable, he was actually calling these religious experts of the scripture to go back to the scripture, he doesn't have to convince them if, if they'll let Scripture convince them. And, and for the second group there, for the people who wandered away, Jesus is telling them, God is searching for you. He's ready to rescue you. And in order to convey that heartwarming truth that this is what God wants to do, Jesus continues in verses 5 and 6. Look at 5 and 6. He says of the shepherd, he says, When he has found it, the lost sheep, He joyfully puts it on his shoulders, and coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together, saying to them, rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. Now, notice what he says. First, when he finds the little guy, he's not angry, like, oh, you're going to get a sheep spanking. No, he's, he's joyful. It says he's joyful, right? 
And he doesn't just grab its neck with this shepherding thing and say, all right, you're coming back this way. Like sometimes you pull hard on a leash or whatever. And he doesn't say, you're walking. You know, you little punk, you walked out here, you're going to walk back. Instead, he gently gets underneath it. He hoists it up on his shoulders. And he gives that little guy a cuddle walk all the way home. Right? The lost sheep to the shepherd is more than a, little, more than a missing piece of property. It's something he cares about. So when he saw it from the distance, alive, he rushed over to it. He would have plucked any of the thorns out of its wool. He would have bandaged any of the cuts. And then he lifted the little pal up on his shoulders. Okay? He then arrives home with the sheep that he carried. He doesn't keep this joy only to himself. It has to be shared. It has to be celebrated. It has to be rejoiced. So he calls his friends, because after all, friends will rejoice with those who rejoice. He calls his neighbors because he wants them to know the sheep is all right. And so he calls them all to join with him, the text says, in rejoicing. Why? Why does he rejoice? What causes joy to become action in him? He finishes the verse by saying, quote, because I have found my lost sheep. That's what makes God rejoice. I have found my lost sheep. Now, at this point, I picture the Pharisees and scribes being ashamed. It's because I'm giving them a charitable reading here. I hope they were ashamed, because if they were, then it means they now see again God as the shepherd in Ezekiel. They could then look at these tax collectors and say, oh, God cares even for them. He searches them out. This is what he promised to do all for Israel. How could have we been so heartless, we who are the teachers? I pray that's what they were saying. I pray they weren't hardened. The text doesn't tell us how they respond to any of these parables. I think we've been wrongly taught in our traditions of man that the Pharisees were all bad, all legalists, and so forth, and it just isn't true. Jesus had a lot of Pharisees who followed him. So we don't know what these guys did. I'm hoping, though, by recalling the scripture, some of them repented and said, hmm, okay? But at this point, I also want us to picture what the tax collectors and sinners were thinking. They, they would have been clinging to every word of this. I think they would, they would suspect that this isn't about the sheep. Who would tell this story just to talk about sheep? Maybe, maybe this guy, this man who made the blind see and made the lame walk, this man who could cure lepers and, and people with lifelong ailments, just maybe he's telling us there's still hope even for tax collectors and prostitutes. Maybe he means that we are the sheep And that that God hasn't given up on us yet. That God will actually receive us back if we come. Because that's the opposite message that they had been hearing. Now, as they're thinking this, I imagine that some fear would overcome them. And they'd be like, but what if I'm imagining this? Maybe he is talking about sheep. And so to protect themselves from disappointment, maybe they try to erase these thoughts. But before they could erase the thought, Jesus shocks the world with what he says in verse 7. He says this, I tell you. In the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. So he is talking about them. He's talking about them. And so at this point, I picture prostitutes weeping in joy and tax collectors realizing that God will still have them. Now, of course, there is a key word in what Christ said that must be present If we look at it again, he says there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Not who keeps on sinning and keeps collecting taxes. No, the sinner who repents. Repentance means to turn away from the sins and to turn to God through his Messiah, Jesus. Right To come to him in faith. To surrender the old sins and surrender your life to King Jesus. These people had been told that there can be no salvation for them, that their sins have cut them off from the people of God. So the temple in Israel would not accept their sacrifices. The synagogues would not accept their prayers. The way had been shut. But now, one who's entered the scene, who can open the way and open the gate, no matter how long some of these guys collected taxes, no matter how long some of them prostituted, no matter how long some of them gave themselves over to any sin, God is saying, come home today. Come home now, turn away from the sin, be its slave no more, come to your true father. Now imagine the freedom these people felt. Perhaps before they gave themselves over to their sin, 
they probably knew the scriptures well as well because kids went to the, the Bait Midrash or the, the Bait Midrash, which was the, the house of learning the schools, whereas little kids, they memorized all sorts of cool scriptures, especially from Torah and the prophets. So maybe, just maybe, these folks, before they fell into their sin, memorized Isaiah chapter 40, verses 9 through 11. And, and, and maybe as Jesus is talking, that word is ringing in their ears. It's possible. Here's what Isaiah 40, verses 9 through 11 says. Zion, herald of good news, go up on a mountain. Jerusalem, herald of good news, raise your voice loudly. Raise it. Do not be afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. See, the Lord God comes with strength and his power establishes his rule. His wages are with him and his reward accompanies him. He protects his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them in the fold of his garment. He gently leads those who are nursing. That's a picture of God that they would have grown up with and longed for. And so if they're putting it all together, which I'm assuming they are, what a happy day for those who turn from their sins and come to God, to Jesus, through faith, in saving faith. Now, I want us to consider also what he is saying here. If we look at verse 7 again, he says, There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. Notice he's saying there's more joy in heaven. It's comparative. More joy in heaven over that one that repents than over the 99 that are already secure. Now, the word heaven here is recognized by scholars just to be referring to God. The technical word is it's a circumlocution. I don't think any of us ever say that in our daily vocabulary. But it's the idea that heaven's not a person. Heaven doesn't rejoice. Heaven's being used to stand in the place or represent God. God is the one who has this joy in him. God is the one who has more joy in him over the one sinner who repents than over the 99. And I know this is weird for us because we don't like to think about God being joyful. We kind of think of God being stoic. But Jesus is making it clear. He delights in our salvation. I don't know any other way to put it. When you are saved, when a person gets saved, God rejoices. He's happy about it. He's glad. Now, Some people do read this, and they do get confused over the 99 righteous people. What do you mean the 99 righteous people who don't need to repent? We've all been told, in fact, Romans 3 told us that all has sinned and have fallen short of God's glory. Therefore, everyone needs to repent, right? Yeah, of course, that's true. What this is talking about is these 99 are those who have already done that, okay? If you've called on the name of the Lord and you've been saved, you're part of that 99 that's secure. You're all right. And in, in the context of, of Luke 15, you know, Jesus hasn't died and raised yet. And so the Pharisees would be that 99. As I said earlier, people often demonize the Pharisees more than the text warrants. Jesus' statement here, since he's talking to them, makes it clear that in his eyes, the Pharisees and the scribes are the 99. He's not discounting the fact, he's not taking away from them the fact that they didn't run off and become tax collectors and prostitutes. He's not taking away from them the fact that they've dedicated their lives, a significant portion of their lives, to the Word of God. He's not taking any of that away, not removing any of that credit. You know what? You guys are the 99. But once he dies on that cross, okay, and raises from the dead, they will have to believe on him. Because at that point, going to the temple in Jerusalem is not going to do them any good. The Levitical system will not roll over their sins. But until that day happens, the Pharisees really were the keepers. Jesus will later say they sit in the seat of Moses. Okay, And so, yeah, these guys are the 99. And furthermore, just to kind of have the idea that not all Pharisees are crazy, in Acts chapter 15, it makes it clear many Pharisees do believe in Jesus. In Acts chapter 23, Paul Before the Sanhedrin still refers to himself as a Pharisee in the present tense. He says, I am a Pharisee and a son of Pharisees. And Paul said that this was 20 years after he came to Christ. Okay, So the idea that Pharisee equals opponent of Christianity isn't true. A lot of Pharisees were, but not just Pharisees, Sadducees, and and a lot of people. Okay, So the point is, is, we shouldn't have a hard time seeing them as the 99. That's what the context is suggesting. His point, Jesus' point, is that the Pharisees, even though they're, they're keeping Torah and all that, they got, they got the heart of God wrong. They got the heart of wrong God about the, uh, they got the heart of, of God wrong about those who are lost. God is willing to go to the lost and hoist them on his shoulders. 
or put them in his garment, as Isaiah 40 said. So rather than despise the lost, we should be seeking their salvation. We should be calling them to repentance. If God celebrates over the one, then shouldn't the 99 also be celebrating? That's what he's getting at. He's, he's telling this to the Pharisees. You should be celebrating this. So anyway, I said the point of the text is that there is a measurable joy in God over one sinner that repents. Jesus ended the parable pretty much saying the same thing. There's joy in God or in heaven over one sinner that repents. <clears throat> and so if this is what brings our God immeasurable joy, then shouldn't that be true of us? Not just those Pharisees, but shouldn't it be true of us? I pray that it would be. Now, of course, I think Jesus could have stopped here, but he's going to reinforce this with the second parable and then even a third. Now, the second one is going to make the exact same point. So let's look at the parable of the lost coin. In verse 8, Jesus asks, Or what woman who has ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? So this question is set up the same way as the one in the first parable. It rules out debate. It's like, look, any reasonable person's going to look for this coin, right? And chances are, I think this example would, would gain less pushback anyway. It's not one out of 100. It's one out of 10. Um, this did have a real economic cost, and it's not dangerous to look for a coin, okay? And so anyway, the word for coin is drachma, and it was roughly back then equivalent to one day's worth of work. So think of one day's regular wage for a laborer. So to help us think about this, if today the average laborer in California makes $180 for a day of work, then picture this coin being worth $180. If you lost $180 in your house, how many of you would make it a priority to find it? How many of you would be lifting up the couches, pulling up the cushions? You know, if you saw the little kid grab the vacuum, you're like, stop. You know, you're not vacuuming yet. Okay, and so I don't think most people would argue with trying to find, you know, the, this coin. Um, but he still issues the question this way to bypass any objections, because there could still be some objections, which I'll get to in a minute. But the picture that he's painting here of the woman searching, it's, it's hard for us to picture because our houses are different, right? The homes back then didn't have windows, and the walls were either stone or mud brick, so no light is getting in other than through the doorway. It's very dim. It's dark inside. The floor was not carpet. It wasn't tile. It wasn't wood. It was smoothed out dirt that you covered with straw. So if you dropped a coin on a dirt floor in a dark house and the floor is covered by straw, this is not going to be an easy find. It is not going to be an easy find. It's going to be a difficult search. So he tells us she sweeps the floor. She uses an oil lamp because she needs the light. He says she, quote, searches carefully. Now, the word search carefully conveys a very laborious search. This is not easy. She has to scour the whole house. And, and because of that, that would be where somebody might be able to argue with the premise here. They might say, you know, that's so dumb. The enormity of the task to, to look for that coin under that straw, she could go out, work in the fields for a day, get a new coin. And that might be faster than busting out that lamp and, and searching for this. <clears throat> but Jesus' point is the coin has such value in her eyes that she's willing to do what might seem like folly to find it. And just like the shepherd did, just like the shepherd did to find the sheep, she's willing to do that to find the coin. Well, verse 9 tells us that she finds it, and she does what the shepherd did. Look at verse 9. He says, when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, rejoice with me, because I have found the silver coin I lost. So she's joyful over finding the coin. And just like the shepherd, she doesn't keep it to herself. This has to be shared. So she calls her friends. Like I said, friends rejoice with those who rejoice. Okay, then she calls her neighbors because she wants them to know the coin's been found. Um, perhaps she asked for prayers. Like, hey, guys, I lost my coin. Could you pray for it? And for those of you who've ever put a prayer request on our Facebook page, people get impatient after two hours. Any updates? You know, so because of that, she's probably like, all right, I got to tell these people I found my coin. And so she does. Right. And then they come and they they celebrate. OK, she valued the coin. It was worth it to her. She wanted to share that 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 joy, that rejoicing with her neighbors and her friends. And so with great labor, she found it. She reclaimed it with joy and she celebrated it. 
Now, obviously, Jesus' audience is probably getting the point because it's just like the parable of the sheep. But he's going to come out with the point again in verse 10 and make it clear just in case somebody's not getting it. In verse 10, he says, I tell you, in the same way, there's joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. So not only is there joy in God, as verse 7 showed, but also his angels. Because guess what? They're not sinners. They rejoice over what makes God happy. So the myriads upon myriads of angels that we read about in Revelation, they all have a big party or celebration in heaven over the salvation of just one person. Just one person. Again, that shows you the heart of God. The point of the text is there is immeasurable joy in God over one sinner that repents. The second parable proved it just like the first. So this brings me back to what I opened with. Do you have a heart for the things that God has a heart for? Okay, let the two parables sink in. Let's compare them a little bit. Both convey loss. There's a loss that, that means something to the person who lost it, right, in the parable. Both parables convey a search and rescue mission. The people in the parables are not content to count these items as a loss. They're not content to simply move on. People be like, oh, just move on. It's not worth it. No, they're not willing to move on over this. No, the loss moves their heart towards great labor in order to find what was lost. Both parables display that the item that was lost will be found. It gets found, right? There's a recovery of what was lost. And perhaps most poignantly, both parables display the folly of the person's response. In other words, what the shepherd and the woman does ultimately doesn't make sense. All that for one sheep when you got 99 all that for one coin, when you still got nine others and you could go work and make that coin back. You do all this? What, what, what folly? Yet both parables end with the absolute joy and elation over the fact that the thing that was lost is now found. Okay? So what's that all mean? Well, let's stop talking about coins and sheep and let's talk about people. Human beings are lost and yet their lostness means something to God. It might not mean anything to the vast majority of clueless and heartless people in the world, but it means something to God. It does. It means something to God, and therefore God conducts a search and rescue mission. God is not content to count people made in his image as a loss and just say, yeah, it's just one person. Who cares? That's not what our God does. He's not content to simply move on. No, our lostness moves his heart toward great labor in order to find that which was lost and rescue it. And, and like the parable, God will find those for whom he's searching. Okay, The people that God is going to save, he's going to save. And he will tend their wounds. He will hoist them up on his shoulder and he will carry them home. And most poignantly, God's grace, just like the shepherd, just like the woman, God's grace seems like folly compared to human eyes. I know a lot of people hate that song. I haven't even listened to it, but I hate it because other people hate it. But that whole reckless love song, yeah, but when you look at it, it might be a good song, actually. I don't know. But God saving us, God saving us does seem like that. Think about it. Think about the folly. What would it take for God to save us? We who are sinners we who, like the tax collectors and the prostitutes, have sinned and done things our way rather than God's, and you might say, I've not done anything that bad. Well, listen, as bad as a tax collector would look to us, your white lie looks worse to the infinite holy God. So we've all sinned. We have all been as dumb as the sheep that wandered from, from the safety. And so like the sheep, we don't deserve to be saved. We, yes, we're made in God's image. We do have that great dignity, but we've rebelled against God. Does he owe us anything? No, he owes us nothing. Yet God is the good shepherd. And so he sends Jesus, the Messiah, as the good shepherd. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, right? You've heard this. He's God. He added humanity to his nature. He was born of a woman in the fullness of the time. He came in our likeness to seek and save that which is lost. He'll say that later in chapter 19 of Luke. He came to chase after wandering sheep. So how did he do it? How did Jesus rescue us? First, he lived a perfect life, never sinning even once. 
That way he could fix our messed up scorecard because our scorecard is filled with failure. His scorecard is filled with perfection. And to be in the presence of God, you have to have a perfect score. He got the perfect score for us. That way he could give us the credit of his life. Even though we've sinned again and again, we could still get the credit of his life. But then he had to do something about that sin, didn't he? Because God is just. He just can't look the other way at sin. It must be punished. Otherwise, there's no justice. So there's only two choices God could have when it comes to punishing sin. He could either punish us for our sin, which would last forever because we've sinned against an infinite God of infinite dignity, and therefore the punishment is of infinite duration. That's what it means for us to pay the price ourselves. Or... Instead, he could punish Jesus in our place. Since as the God-man and as the Messiah, Jesus also has infinite dignity. And so as one with infinite dignity, he can pay an infinite price, even in a finite amount of time, if that makes sense. Only Jesus could pull this off, right? And so on the cross, that sinless body was mutilated. We have to remember the whip ripped off shreds of his back, right? And then he's put on that cross, and those nails stuck his feet to the cross, making him cursed, right? He was cursed by being hung on that tree, right? The the, the nails severed his nerves, the excruciating pain of that. And then the awful pain of his mutilated back rubbing up and down against a splintery, jagged cross as he's lifting himself to avoid asphyxiation or suffocation. And then you add to that the humiliation of the crowds mocking him, failing to realize that he's actually doing what the good shepherd does to save the wandering sheep, and yet they're mocking him for it. And if that's not bad enough, the sky went dark, and the Father in heaven poured out in an invisible way all the wrath that we would have got in hell for all eternity. The Father was able to concentrate that into that last three hours on the cross. That is the cup that Jesus was saying, if it's possible for this to pass. Okay, the cup of the Father's full eternal wrath. And yet, not as, I, not as I will, but as you will. And so Jesus drank that full cup. The worst that humanity could do to him on that cross isn't even worth mentioning when we compare it to what was happening invisible to the eyes during that period of three hours of darkness. And only after every last sin was paid did Jesus say, it is finished or paid in full. Okay? That is what God did to save us. And we know that Jesus rose on the third day. He rose from the dead, proving that the Father accepted his work, and he's alive to give us the credit of his perfect life. This is amazing grace. Amazing grace. But here's the thing I really want us to think about. After painting the picture for us of what he did to save us, we need to understand the value of the trade. Acts chapter 20, verse 28, says that God purchased the church by his own blood. The fact that he purchased means a price was paid. A transaction happened. When you buy something, it has worth. And usually what you pay has equal worth to what you bought. That's how economies work. But in this case, not even close. Not even close. Listen, Jesus is worth more than you. He's worth more than me. As the perfect man, he is worth more than you or me because he is not a sinner like you or I. And yet, then we add to the fact that he's God. He is worth infinitely more than you or I. Because God is God and we are not. Okay, so he is worth more than us. As the God-man, then Jesus is worth more than you, me, all humans who've ever lived, all animals, all planets, all solar systems, all galaxies, and the entire universe. If you put all those things on one side of a scale, and then you put Jesus all by himself on the other side, his side will hit the ground, that other side will raise up as if there's nothing on it. Because it's absolutely weightless and worth compared to the God-man who was spent for us. So think about that. Think about that. It was him, the most valuable one ever, that the Father spent on those who would be saved, on those who would turn away from their sins and turn to God by faith in the Messiah Jesus. Even though we are not worth as much as Christ, not even close, God still spent Christ to save us. That seems like folly to human eyes. That would be like paying a billion dollars for a stale piece of bubble gum, okay? And even that doesn't convey the gap between what was bought versus what was spent, okay? And so just like it seemed like the shepherd was dumb for leaving the 99, this just make this is way bigger is my point. It doesn't even compare. 
It looks like folly. Who would spend something of infinite value to redeem something of only finite value? It is not an even trade, not even close. Yet God did that very thing. He spent that on us. And if you don't know God and you turn from your sins and you believe on the Lord Jesus, then it means he spent it on you too. And if that folly then doesn't seem strange enough, if that doesn't seem absolutely ludicrous and crazy, well, then let's add a little bit of crazy to this. If you do come to the Lord, he then celebrates this. He celebrates the fact that he got ripped off to save you. He celebrates this with the most immense joy that every single time a guilty sinner repents, he parties and the angels with him. God already did all that for the 99, but he also does it for the one. And so these parables, they should break us. So far, we've only seen a lost sheep and lost coin. Next time, we're going to see a lost man. Even more than that, we're going to see a lost son. And so if you think Christ has made his point well with the first two parables, wait till the third one. It blows those ones out of the water. Okay, but we'll have to wait for that until next time. What I want to do now is I want to finish with some exhortations from these parables. First, I want us to understand that originally this parable spoke to Israelites. They were all in a covenant with God. So if one wandered, yeah, they should be cut off from the people, but the good shepherd of Israel would search to bring them back. Okay, That is what Jesus is showing his fellow Israelites. That's what the good shepherd does. But the beauty of these parables is they can extend beyond the initial context of Israel because parables have a universality to them. So don't only think of Israel. You start there, but then you're like, can this expand? Yes. Think of all humanity. We are all made in the image of God. We all belong to God. We are his property in that sense. Paul says in Acts 17, it's in God we live and move and breathe. That's all people, right? And Ezekiel tells us multiple times that God does not delight in the death or destruction of the wicked. And so Jesus made it clear in the Gospel of John that Israel is his flock, but he has sheep not of this fold, meaning of the nations. So his flock is pulled from all humanity. So that means every lost sinner, in some sense, is a lost sheep wandering from the God who made them. Okay? And many of them will be condemned for their sins. Many of them will not turn and repent and come to God. They will continue in their wandering, and they will be condemned for that. But that's not our mission. Our mission is not to condemn them. That's what God is going to do, right, if they don't turn. Our mission is to do what the good shepherd does. Jesus, the good shepherd, ascended into heaven, and before he did that, he told we who believe, his spiritual body, he told us to do what? To preach the good news of salvation to all creation, to every nation. And how are we to do this? He tells us in Matthew 18, or Matthew 28, 18 and 19, he says we do this as we go along. As you go, do this. That means in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our communities, and to the ends of the earth. Okay, the one is in your house, anybody who's not saved. The one is any neighbor you have that's not saved. The one is the people uh, John had us pray about earlier. The one is all over the place. And, and here's the thing that, that I think we just need to get over. We all love the fact that God saved us. We don't need to get over that. We love the fact that someone told us the good news. We love the fact that Jesus did all that for us. We love the fact that God hoisted us on his shoulders and carried us home. But this is what we need to get over. Like the Pharisees and the scribes, we look at the lost with derision. We just do, by and large, most of us. Not all of us, but most of us, myself included. A lot of times, we look at the existence of the lost in our society as a threat to the good old days. As a threat to the life we want to live in this present evil age. So we look at them as enemies. We look at them like the 99 in the parable. We're looking at the one is not being worth it. We look at them counting the days until God comes and destroys them because of the evil they do. All the while, we forget we were once lost and God searched for us and he found us. When we don't evangelize, when we don't contribute to the Great Commission, we are like the 99 being unmoved about the plight of the one. There's no other way to put it. And when that is how we think, we are thinking nothing like our God. We're thinking nothing like him and we're, we're moving nothing like him because he moved to save us. And then he's called us to be his hands and feet to move to save others. If we care for what God cares about, if our heart breaks over what breaks his heart, if, it, if what brings God joy will bring us joy, then we will all care about the one. The one is all over the place. 
The ones in your home, as I said, your workplace, your neighborhood. The one is in poverty and hard to reach places. Okay, it was hard for the shepherd to go after the one, right? It wasn't easy, but people still need to go. Those who God calls. The one comes in all shapes and sizes. The one is in all parts of the world. And God has sent the good shepherd, King Jesus, to seek and save the one. Okay, and Jesus told us he will do it through us his spiritual body, and he told us he's not coming back until we do it. Until we get the gospel to every nation, tribe, and tongue, he's not coming back, right? So if God and the angels celebrate in heaven every single time a sinner repents, then should we not desire to see people saved daily? Should that not be our greatest desire? Should we not realize every time we immerse someone in that tank after they've made a proclamation of faith that there is a celebration, not just here, we clap for a minute, but they're having a party up there that makes ours look like nothing, okay? And knowing that, that should be the desire of our heart to keep this going, to keep bringing people to the Lord, that this needs to be our greatest desire while we're on earth. It must be, because this is how we glorify God, right? It's not about evangelism gimmicks, or methods. And by the way, the methods are good, they're helpful. But you could have a method on the mouth of someone who doesn't have God's heart, and they will be less effective for the kingdom than a person who knows no methods, but has the same heart that God has for the lost and just keeps telling them. Now, if you could take the person with that heart and combine them with the method, even better. So we're not being called to wait until we've been trained. We have to ask, do we have the heart now? And if we do, then we go after the one. We just do. We do. It's about lost sheep and about us faithfully carrying out the dangerous and laborious task of searching and rescuing them. We want evangelism to be easy because we want comfort. But in both of these parables, it was hard. Finding that coin was not easy. Searching for that sheep was dangerous in that wilderness. But that's what we've been called to do. Jesus made it clear to us. He didn't lie to us. He didn't paint the picture of it being rosy and easy. He painted the picture that this is hard work, but this is what I did to save you. And I'm calling on you to share the same message with those who have not heard. Now, a lot of this stuff I've said is going to be hit again in the third parable, perhaps even in a stronger way with the prodigal son. Jesus will pull out all the stops to make his point there. But my prayer for us here today or anybody listening online is that we will no longer as believers be content to act like the Pharisees an indifferent 99 who's indifferent to the plight of the lost. May our hearts be like our Father's heart, 